This event was recorded live at the 2019 Edinburgh International Book Festival, a 17-day celebration of words and stories welcoming authors and audiences from around the globe. You can hear more events by subscribing on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or Acast, and watch event videos at edbookfest.co.uk and on YouTube at edbookfest. Hello everyone and welcome to the Edinburgh International Book Festival. Now I put on my middle-aged person's glasses. Um, my name is Lee Randall and I'm really delighted to be here today with Stuart Turton, and who's misbehaving already. Start as you mean to go on. Wave! <laughs> Thank and, you. And Louise Doughty. Now, I'm, I'm the straight woman. <laughs> we're going to have some readings, we're going to have some conversation. You are all going to have a chance to, well not all of you, because we'd be here for two hours. Some of you will have a chance to ask questions, and then um, there'll be a signing afterwards in the bookshop, and I'm hoping you'll all be very inspired. Can I just ask, phones on silent? And you're um, contractually obligated to tweet that we're fabulous. <laughs> there are no other possible tweets allowed. So I'm going to um, introduce the two authors first. Stu Turton was a freelance travel journalist living the good life in Dubai. And he convinced his wife that he had finally figured out the perfect twist for the novel that he'd always wanted to write since he was a little boy, but that they would have to move back to London to do it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the Seven Deaths of Evelyn Hardcastle, or Evelyn, depending on how you like to pronounce that name. It won the Glass Bell Award from Goldsboro Books. No, it I is. Didn't. I thought it did. No. For our purposes. Right, okay. <laughs> it won the Nobel. Uh, A Pulitzer. The Pulitzer. Yeah. yeah. No. Okay. The Costa, yeah. I did actually win that one, so we're not allowed to mention that one. Yeah. It won the Lee Award for... I, I really apologize. I usually get my facts reasonably straight. Okay, well, <laughs> I'm going to describe it using Stuart's own description, so this is right. It's Groundhog Day, as told by Agatha Christie, fired through a quantum leap cannon. <laughs> it's, a, it's a country house mystery with a twist. The narrator wakes up in a different character every day with limited access to the experience and wisdom earned in prior incarnations, and his job, night after night is to try and stop Evelyn dying, or Evelyn. Um, Louise is the best-selling author of Apple Tree Yard, which has been translated into 30 languages, sold more than, tell me if these facts are correct, <laughs> sold more than 400,000 copies. Half a million. <laughs> <laughs> that is true. I really pride myself on my homework. <laughs> no, my publisher's got that wrong on the proof, that's not your fault. Oh, okay. Half a million? Even more impressive, been shortlisted for the CWA Steel Dagger. <laughs> Every time I say something, I'm going to wait to be, you know, yeah. <laughs> the National Book Award. Um, her 2016 novel, Blackwater, was nominated as one of the New York Times' book reviews, top books of the year, top 100 books of that year. And Whatever You Love was shortlisted for the Costa and long listed for the Orange Prize. Now, Louise has also written a book about the actual craft of writing. She's been a theatre and book reviewer, presenter of BBC Radio 4's A Good Read, and a prize judge. Platform 7, which is not even officially out until the 22nd of this month, is her ninth novel. Um, this story has a twist at its heart. The narrator is dead, and seemingly doomed to spend eternity at the train station in Peterborough, where she died. <laughs> um, 
it's actually not funny. This would be been to Peterborough. Well, we'll be hearing about that. Um, as she pieces together who she was and how she lived, a vivid story of emotional abuse unfolds. So welcome, both of you. Let's give them another round of applause. Thank you. Since this is your first novel, let's start with you. Okay. Do you want to set us up with a little bit of a reading so that the audience can have the flavour of the book? Surely can. That would be lovely. Uh, can I just... Who's read it before, Seven Deaths? Oh. Okay. That's okay. Good. The rest <laughs> of you are going to be very confused. So <laughs> let's just ride it out. Um, I was saying to these guys when we were just chatting, I'm going to go in... It's a weird novel, this. Just stands for the entire novel, but it's a weird novel in the sense that if I read from page one, you'll think it's not the novel it is. So we're not going to do that. So what we're going to do is we're going to read from page 73. It'll be fine, trust me. It's a better flavour of what goes on. It's dark. The net on the window fluttering in the breadth of a moonless night. The sheets are soft, the bed comfortable and canopied. Clutching the eider down, I smile. It was a nightmare, that's all. Slowly, beat by beat, my heart quietens, the taste of blood fading with dream. It takes me a few seconds to remember where I am, another to pick out the dim shape of a large man standing in the corner of the room. My breath catches in my throat. Sliding my hand through the covers towards the bedside table, I reach for the matches, but they seem to slither away from my searching fingers. Who are you? I ask the darkness, unable to keep the tremor from my voice. A friend. It's a man's voice, muffled and deep. Friends don't lurk in the gloom, I say. I didn't say I was your friend, Mr. Davis. My blind fumbling almost knocks the oil lamp off the bedside table. Attempting to steady it, my fingers find the matches cowering at its base. Don't worry about the light, says the darkness. It will little profit you. I strike the match with a trembling hand, touching it to the lamp. Flame explodes behind the glass, driving the shadows deep into the corners and illuminating my visitor. It's a man in a plague doctor costume. Uh, his greatcoat is scuffed and tattered at the edges, a top hat and porcelain beak mask covering all of his face except for the eyes. Gloved hands rest on a black cane, an inscription inlaid in sparkling silver down the side, though the writing's much too small to read at this distance. Observant, good, remarks the plague doctor. Footsteps sound from somewhere in the house, and I wonder if my imagination is sufficient to conjure the mundane details of such an extraordinary dream. The hell are you doing in my room? I demand, surprising myself with the outburst. The beak mask ceases its exploration, fixing on me once again. We have work to do, he says. I have a puzzle which requires a solution. I think you've mistaken me for somebody else, I say angrily. I'm a doctor. You were a doctor, he says. Then a butler, today a playboy, tomorrow a banker. None of them is your real face, or your real personality. Those were stripped from you when you entered Blackheath, and they won't be returned until you leave. Reaching into his pocket, he pulls out a small mirror and tosses it onto the bed. See for yourself. The glass shakes in my hand, reflecting a young man with striking blue eyes and precious little wisdom behind them. The face in the glass isn't that of Sebastian Bell, who I was yesterday, or the burnt butler I was this morning. His name's Donald Davis, says the plague doctor. He has a sister called Grace and a best friend called Jim, and he doesn't like peanuts. Davis will be your host for today, and when you wake up tomorrow, you'll have another. That's how this works. It wasn't a dream after all, it really happened. I lived the same day twice in the bodies of two different people. 
I talked to myself, berated myself and examined myself through somebody else's eyes. I'm going mad, aren't I? I say, looking at him over the top of the mirror. I can hear the cracks in my voice. Of course not, says the plague doctor. Madness would be an escape, and there's only one way to escape Blackheath. That's why I'm here. I have a proposition for you. That's it. It's a complicated book, and you famously mapped it out to when it's in an inch of its life. Mm -hmm. And I want to know, I'm hoping you'll describe that map a little bit, but knowing that you had it so precisely mapped out, start to finish, did that not diminish the enjoyment of writing it at all? Oh, God, yeah. It turned into an endless, pleasureless slog. (laughs) Uh, No, it was... It's basically like, if you had all of the Amazon in front of you, and you knew there was something amazing at the end of it, right? It's like somebody building you a road, rather than just saying, it's in there somewhere, go and find it. Like, Uh I couldn't have done it without the planning. It needed that level of intricacy. To put it in perspective, I spent three months planning this book before I ever wrote a word of it. Not a single word went down on paper. Three months of planning. You know what it does to a person? This. (laughs) Does this to a person. Like, all of this. I was youthful. I was energetic. (laughs) Did not have a grey hair. I was 20 years younger. Um, But it was. Like, it just... Because... And I started... Not to get too complicated, but I started with the murder first. I have a time-travelling detective. How do you murder someone when a time-travelling detective can just go back and follow the person who's murdered through the day and see who bops her on the head or stabs her in the chest or shoots her or drowns her or whatever it is? So I had to untangle that problem first, and then once I had that, then I started working backwards and coming up with the clues and the plot and everything else I would need. So, yeah, it was. there was times when it was restrictive, but the, more often than not, I knew... Every day I woke up, I was like, well, this is what I'm doing today. And that was great. Because didn't you have it mapped out in, for all the characters in two-minute segments? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Horrific, isn't it? Um, so <laughs> every character in the book, and there are lots of them, my character has eight hosts, so he jumps into a different body in the same house every day and repeats the day. So there was eight protagonists who all get about an equal amount of time. Then there's a lot of secondary characters, and then there's a lot of tertiary characters who come jot in and out. And uh, every one of them, every day for each character was mapped out in two-minute increments, so I knew exactly where they were. Some of them were cheats, don't get me wrong. You would have, like, a maid who's in the kitchen for four hours. Like, I don't say what she's doing, but that's where she is for that block of time. <laughs> but it was more so that I could understand without cheating, because the entire book was supposed to be honest and fair. You can solve it, right? Like, that level of planning I put into place was so you can solve it. It's written in the first person, present tense. So that my, as my narrator goes through the book, and he starts with amnesia, he has no more information than you as a reader have got. And that's why that was done. So it's a board game. I am playing against you. He gets information, you get information, and if you want to keep track of it, you can solve it. As two people on Twitter who have given me minute-by-minute, blow-by-blow recreations <laughs> of their thought process have done, uh, including one wonderful woman who showed me a picture of her psychopath's board, I guess, like <laughs> all the clues. So you can do it, you can get there. Like, to the point where it's my, it's my famous bugbear, that like, I, I am that awful person who seeks out bad reviews. I find them quite funny. And so I'll go and seek out bad reviews, and the only one that ever bothers me is when someone's like, well, A, it was lazy. It took me two and a half years, right? Like, admittedly, I was sat down for all of it, but <laughs> two and a half years. 
and then <laughs> B, they're like, well, you couldn't, you couldn't possibly solve it because he keeps things from you. I'm like, yeah, it's a mystery, but you can solve it. <laughs> you absolutely can. I keep, from starters, I keep the name of the murderer from you. Like, what do you want? Anyway, so, <laughs> yes, all of those things, you can solve it. It was meant to be a board game, and that's why it's planned so intricately. And isn't this based, I, I read an interview or listened to an interview where you talked about the fact that the Golden Age mysteries that some of us are really big fans of, they were more like puzzles than mm. current uh, crime fiction. Well, that's how they felt to me. I don't know if that's a, a truism, but to me, that's what they felt like. They felt, when I was reading those, because the reason I wrote this book, it's just, it's for all of the stuff you've heard and read and the Groundhog Day loop and the body swapping, it is at heart an Agatha Christie mystery. Like, that's what it does. That's why I always want, to the point where I've had arguments when I was going through the publishing process and it was getting bought by agents and it was getting bought by publishers. I did have arguments with people who were, they either wanted it to be more of a sci-fi thing or they wanted it to be more of a crimey thing and mm -hmm. drop some of the sci-fi things. So I had some arguments that as a debut author, you probably shouldn't be having, especially when you've like sort of, you know, I'm not going to say put your entire life on this thing working and getting published, but it was, I did do that, and it was, I was like, no, it has to be this combination of things. So, yeah, it's, but it's, it's an Agatha Christie crime novel, and the sci-fi bits into it, but they are, they're the background, they're the sort of, like, yeah. gilding to the story. And now the thing, so I read it first in proof form, what, so what's that, 18 months ago? It feels like Two years? 14 years. It does feel long, like... Yeah, a long time and, ago. And I'll be honest, so I read it the first time, because I was bringing Stuart to Granite Noir, and I basically spent the whole time going, what the hell is going on here? <laughs> hell was not the word you used in the tent outside. <laughs> I'm trying to behave. I've already screwed things up. <clears throat> uh, yeah, but so you give me a Pulitzer. <laughs> <laughs> so the first reading, I was very much, even though I knew it was going to scramble my brain, it did scramble my brain even more. So I recently reread it for here, and I suddenly realized, first of all, it, it just... I wasn't as puzzled, not mm -hmm. because I remembered every detail, but because I, I wasn't as nervous about missing the detail. Yeah. And the other thing I noticed was it's actually quite um, an indictment of the um, posh people in their posh houses with their yeah. fancy lifestyles. Can we you can't say this in Edinburgh. You can't say it in Edinburgh. <laughs> you can say this in Glasgow. What are you doing? <laughs> can you talk about that a little? The indictment or how puzzling it is. Or no, not the puzzlingness, the, the, the indictment of flag, posh people. flagging posh people. Yeah, this accent is not put on. Uh, <laughs> so let's start with that. I grew up in a working class northern town called Witness outside Liverpool. Um, <laughs> I may have written a little article in The Guardian about it and now everyone in the Witness hates me. So that's worth looking up if you want to see why so many people want me dead. Um, so I grew up there and it is, how do I phrase this? A shithole. <laughs> uh, it's a shithole because of successive years of neglect by governments. They don't care about witness. They don't care about working class towns. Uh, the expectation of me growing up was that I would leave school at 16 and go and work in a warehouse. Um, a lot of my friends ended up doing that. That was just, there was no ambition for the town. There was no ambition for the children in the town. My parents, thank God, didn't feel that way. They pushed me. Um, so... That's the sort of area I grew up in. But at the same time, when I, my neighbour would bring, when I was eight years old, she would bring home these Agatha Christie novels. This is how I mm -hmm. got into them. Big stacks of them. She bought from car boot sales for 10p each. 
and she would deliver them and I'd read them. And like the one thing, it wasn't the mystery of them, which I did love, it was the life. I've said this before, but it's absolutely true. For me, they were Tolkien. They were my fantasy, right? Reading these books were that. I was like, that fucking Lord Carmichael was my fucking Gandalf. Like, <laughs> he was rich, but he never worked. That's fucking magic, isn't it? <laughs> He's got a massive house, which like people aren't knocking on the door to make him pay bills over. Quite incredible. And all his friends just turned up on cars, and it was always fucking sunny. It was amazing. So this, these books just represent... I couldn't understand them, and I couldn't make sense of them. And I remember asking my mum, I was like, I genuinely what's going on? Like, why don't these people work? And she's like, oh, because they're rich. And I'm like, what's rich? Like, I didn't, my town, nobody was rich. It didn't matter. We had that. It was the one saving grace of the place that you made down the road didn't have any more than you did. Yeah. So that was dead helpful. So I grew up with that instinctively, a suspicion, a natural suspicion of inherited wealth. I don't like it. I think we should get rid of it. Everyone should start from zero every single time, right? You can build up all the wealth you want in your life, but it has to be yours. And mm-hmm. there shouldn't be any way of passing it on to your children. Fuck those guys. Like, probably won't live for another 50 years anyway, the way things are going, right? So, like, <laughs> screw it. But, like, I don't like inherited wealth. I generally don't like what it does to people. I am suspicious of posh people. I am suspicious of people who are five generations wealthy because how can you possibly understand the world? You can't. You can't relate to it. You don't have... If you're... Like, there's this thing, isn't it? Like, money doesn't buy happiness. That is bollocks. Like, what money does do is it allows you to find somebody to go and buy you happiness, right? You can offload your problems onto someone else. So... That wasn't supposed to be the point of the novel, but it kind of crept into it yeah, as I was yeah. writing no, it. Yeah, it's not the point of it, but it was a, f- it was a s- theme that I yeah. had overlooked the first time around. Oh, interesting, because a lot of people... It's interesting how many people got onto that and were like, well, that's a thing that you're clearly doing. And truthfully, it wasn't I'm a slow. thing. Yeah, that's what I've always thought about you, like, yeah. <laughs> uh, but, no, it was really odd, because for me, there was a lot of things... You know this as well, like when you're writing, there's loads of yourself that just happens on the page. You don't mean for it. It's not in the planning. It wasn't any post-it notes on my walls. It was just suddenly in there. I was like, God, I really hate all of these people. (laughs) And then I realized that I'd given myself a book where I could freely hate them because I was going to murderize a lot of them. It was great. (laughs) So I made them as loathsome as I possibly could, apart from one character who kind of weirdly grew on me. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we'll come back to that. Yeah. Let's 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 talk about um, platform seven. And do you, can you do you want to set the story up a little bit? Maybe give us a little reading, a flavor of the. Yes, sure. Um, maybe I'll do a bit of explanation first, if that's okay. Um, platform seven. I think I'm claiming a first in literary history, possibly my only first of my career. Which is, I am, if I'm correct, the first person to set a novel on Peterborough railway station. It's true, isn't it? I think I'm I'm claiming that. Um, And I have a very ambivalent relationship with um, Peterborough Railway Station. I grew up in a small town in the East Midlands, and then I went to university in Leeds, and when I went home in the holidays, that involved changing trains at Peterborough Railway Station. Then I did an MA in creative writing at the University of East Anglia in Norwich, and when I went home, that involved changing trains at Peterborough Railway Station. And then I moved to London for the rest of my adult life. I've lived there for 30 years now. And when I visited my parents, taking children as they grew, that involved changing trains at Peterborough Railway Station. So for the whole of my adult life, Peterborough Railway Station has been this like sort of this centre point. It's been 
the place where, I, I think I used a phrase in the novel where I said it, it sits in the middle of England like a spider in the middle of its web, and like a spider it's always alert to movement. And it's a real interchange. And, of course, the interesting thing, as lots of you probably remember, I mean, my parents are dead now, but when they were alive, when you're an adult, you go back to visit them, and you're not just going back geographically, you're going back into your own past, mm. you're revisiting your own childhood, you, you know, who you were then. And so those big interchange railway stations, I think, are really interesting transition points where you, you, ca you transition from one world to another. So... Um, I did used to have a standing joke that if I'd been really bad, when I died and went to purgatory, I would find myself trapped on Peterborough's <laughs> sodding railway station oh, on a cold God. winter's night as a wind blew across the fens. Um, and so I decided to write a whole novel about that. And it is Peterborough <laughs> Railway Station as a metaphor for purgatory. Um, as it opens, there's a young woman who is trapped on the station. Uh, you find out very quickly that she's a ghost. Um, and she's died on the station, and because of that, she can't escape there. So it's like it's where the lost souls go, and there's more than one lost soul in this novel. As the book opens, a man comes onto the station at 4 a.m. on a freezing November night, and she realises immediately that he's there to throw himself in front of a freight train, because he goes over to Platform 7, and the first train out of Platform 7 is the 610 to Birmingham New Street. She knows the timetables off by heart, because she's <laughs> had a lot of time there to study them. And she tries and fails um, to prevent him doing it. And so through the novel is the mystery of his death, why he did that. And there's the central mystery of who she is and how she died. And at the beginning of the book, she has no memory. Um, but the book is actually in three-thirds. A third of the way through, she has a kind of Jason Bourne moment, and she remembers her past. In the middle third of the book, you go back into her past, and you find out a lot more about her background. And then in the final third, the two strands of the narrative um, come together as she sets out to find the man she, uh, who is responsible for her death, as she believes it. But needless to say, there's lots of information she doesn't know at that point. Um, it was quite interesting writing from the point of view of a ghost. Um, it's incredibly hard not to make a ghost twee. Um, because what verbs do you use for the way that a ghost occupies space and moves around? You know, you find yourself using verbs like float or drift, or, and then um, she started to sound like Casper. Remember Casper? <laughs> yeah. ghost. So in the editorial process, all those verbs had to come right out and be stripped back, and she had to become pure consciousness. Um, the other strand of the story, which I'll just explain before I read a section, is she falls in love with a commuter who she sees passing through the station. And um, she sees him, spots him immediately as a very troubled young man and feels a yearning for him. And then she starts to follow him. She starts to stalk him. And when she falls in love with this young man, she finds she's able to leave the station for the first time in 18 months. And she believes that love has set her free. In actual fact, she's gravely mistaken about that. <laughs> um, but there's a big strand in the novel about the difference between love, obsessive love, and possession, and, you know, what is love? Is it the desire to possess somebody? Or is that actually something much more strange and creepy, which is actually what it turns out to be? And there's whole themes in the book about manipulation, gaslighting, and coercive control when you go back into her past. Um, but the scene I'm going to read, from Lisa's point of view, the whole novel is um, in her voice, um, again, sort of present tense, 
is she's just found herself unexpectedly released from Peterborough Railway Station, and she sets out to explore the surrounding area. I don't know how many of you have had the joy of exploring the immediate surroundings of Peterborough <laughs> Railway Station, but there's a multi-storey car park, <laughs> there's the British Transport Police um, offices, uh, there's the Queensgate Shopping Centre, there's the Great Northern Hotel, which I stayed in when I wrote this novel, um, the hotel that time forgot, uh, <laughs> it's wonderful 50s decor. Um, it is the only time, um, I, I had room 132, which I can recommend, because if you lift the sash window, you can look out over the station, you can even hear the announcements, and it's the only time I've done my primary research while eating an excellent cook's breakfast in bed. <laughs> um, and to your left, there is a brand new shiny Waitrose. So she goes off to explore the environs, and she's seeing Waitrose through the eyes of somebody who's been trapped on a railway station for 18 months. She's sort of seeing it afresh. So this is Lisa's observations as she's floating around Waitrose. It's vast. I don't remember it being this vast. It's almost empty when I go at midday, but for a few women pushing toddlers in trolleys and some retired couples, as soon as I enter, I'm assailed by sugar and fat. Since when did donuts come in so many flavors? Lemon icing, raspberry icing, salted caramel icing. It isn't just the donuts. I traverse the aisles. Ice cream sauce comes in creamy fudge flavor, Belgian chocolate flavor, raspberry coolie flavor, and my favorite, Alfonso mango, passion fruit, and yuzu. What's a yuzu? Is an Alfonso mango significantly different from any other kind of mango? By which I mean, does it actually taste different when it's bottled with passion fruits and yuzos and a shed load of sugar? Will Mrs. Barker, this is the wife of the inspector of the British Transport Police at Peterborough Station, who appears in the novel, when her inspector husband brings home ordinary mango sauce, say, oh, for heaven's sake, Peter, I can't possibly put this mango sauce on my ice cream. You know I only like Alfonso mango. <laughs> or perhaps, where's my yuzus? Rice. Pure basmati, brown basmati, white bas <coughs> basmati and quinoa. Wild rice. I'm presuming that's a lot more fun than pure rice. And if you tire of wild, you can always go home to aromatic and fluffy. Next to the packets of rice are packets of microwave rice, which is rice for people who can't be bothered to cook rice. And next to them are packets of something called collie rice, rice made of cauliflower, for people who not only can't be bothered to cook rice, they don't even like rice. <laughs> When did all this choice become necessary, let alone normal? It was normal for me once. I was once a person who wandered up and down aisles such as these and thought nothing of it. How come our physical needs and desires are catered for in such minute detail and with such infinite variety, and yet it's so hard to get help when we feel sad? Where's the supermarket display for that? Beyond the low wall made by the magazine rack, there's a cafe area, empty but for a solitary retired couple who sit opposite each other by the floor-to-ceiling windows. On the table in front of them, they both have soup of the day, which today is green soup, and diagonal slices of baguette. They lather butter onto the baguette without speaking, then sit, spooning the green soup into their mouths while staring straight ahead, right through each other. Above their heads, music plays, softly. I watch them for a while, 
and wonder if they hate each other or love each other, or both, perhaps. Whether they are not speaking because they only snarl these days, or whether it is simply that they prefer to sit together in comfortable, companionable silence. On my way out, I drift along the salad bar, glancing into the tubs of salad one by one, wondering why so many of them contain kidney beans. <laughs> Thank you. I'm just going to say, that's really spooky. Oh, you got that quote. Great, yeah. <laughs> I, before I ask anything specific about the book, I just want to ask you a general question about your career, because when I started researching you, every, all your books seem to be labeled. Your early books, chiclet and thrillers and... You, Historical. Yeah. And, yeah. and while I do understand the marketing need and, and the, the good benefits of saying to certain readers, look, this is for you, I just wonder how you feel as an author being constantly shoved into boxes instead of just saying, look, a new book by Louise. Why don't yeah. we just look at it that way? Um, well, that's a really interesting question. Um, one of the reasons I really love my current editor at Faber is when I, I took Platform 7 Inter, and it was the first of my books she'd edited because she was new to the firm. And I said, oh, so what do we say? Do we say, you know, this is a new thriller from the author Apple Tree Yard? Do we say what? She said, we say it's the new novel by Louise Doughty. That's it. You know, and she's very fierce about that. Mm. And she does say, you know, Sebastian Folks or Julian Barnes or anyone you care to mention, it's the new novel by them. It's, there's mm -hmm. not the same impulse to say, we have to put you in this box or that box. Because they're um, men. Because that may, may be a factor. Um, and obviously, the sort of being put in a box thing is slightly tricky for me, because as you say, it's novel number nine, and they've all been different. I mean, two of them have been historical. Um, Fires in the Dark was a Holocaust novel. Uh, Blackwater was about political violence in Indonesia. Mm. Um, the first three books were about young women's lives, and they got these kind of hideous sort of chick-litty covers. But I mean, one was about a girl who murders her parents. <laughs> so it's just, there was... Um, it's this odd feeling when you've taken something that you think is complex and is really just the new story you've written, and then you see how it has to kind of transmute from a kind of, if you like, a subject to an object. And I understand that as a marketing tool, mm, and it's yeah. a very necessary marketing tool. Yeah. And it does have its benefits. It does have its benefits. And certainly I have to say that um, the great thing about being a thriller writer is, A, it's not gender-specific praise the Lord, and B, it's so broad that mm. that's actually quite exciting. And I mean, also this other tag that I get is domestic noir, which I think is also something that only gets applied to women. Um, yeah. But, you know, what is Jane Eyre if not domestic mm. noir? It's a story about, you know, the darkness within the home. So of all the sort of labels that have been stuck on me, this is the, <laughs> most, the, best the one I mind <laughs> least. I'll settle, I'll settle with this. Yeah. But yeah, it's, it, it's a funny business. It is a funny business. It's a now, we've heard about <laughs> Stu's prep, well, besides camping out at Peterborough in room what, 132? 132 at Great Northern Hotel. Yeah. Can I Do just say I'm that sounds worse than all my prep? <laughs> 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 I'm, really, I'm going to be really upset if there's no plaque on the door of that <laughs> hotel room eventually. Do you, do you, how long does an idea gestate, or are you somebody... Because some people, the only way they can get the idea out is by starting to write Absolutely. it. Absolutely. I was listening with envy um, to the detailed plan because I'm completely the opposite. I do no planning at all. I throw myself in, I write whatever scene comes to my head. 
um, when I'm working. I might read what I wrote the day before and carry on, but I just as likely might read what I wrote the day before and then write something three quarters of the way through the book. And what I end up with in my first draft is just like this like chaotic morass of scenes and notes and sometimes research material or leaflets or photographs I've taken and it's all in a box file and it's chaos and that's the point at which I, I always think please can I not die now because <laughs> this will be meaningless um, and then I have to sit down and I do literally physically spread it out across the floor and think okay wow. I've got to start making some sense here um, I might have between half or three quarters of the scenes in the book all in a mess and then I start thinking what is the narrative thread here what story am I trying to tell that's fascinating. Can I just... Do you, so do you have an ending in mind while you're writing? Oh, that was my next question. Oh, sorry. <laughs> well, you can sit down. You don't <laughs> um, I do. I mean, this is why I sometimes call... Uh, when I want to dignify it with the word method, I call it the jigsaw method because, you know, jigsaw, you throw all the bits on the floor, you find the corner bits first, mm. yeah. and then you find the yeah. straight bits and you fill in. And I do quite often write the opening paragraph very early on. Yeah. That is some quite often the first. I mean, certainly this one, it was the opening paragraph. In fact, the last few novels, it's been the opening paragraph. And I will write the final line or the final paragraph very early on. Oh, wow. And then it's like there, I've got to string the rope bridge across the canyon. Yeah. Yeah. I've got my middle and the end. It's just the little matter of the intervening 400 yeah. pages that's the, the problem. That's right. The reason I was going to ask about it is because one of my personal bugbears as a reader is when you go along and go along and the writer, my phrase is, doesn't stick the ending, mm. right? It's like when they fall off the balance beam and you think, Jesus Christ, I, you yeah. know, you were going great until that last 10 pages. And this ending is, I was weeping. It, oh. I loved it so much and I was like, she stuck the ending, yes! <laughs> you know, so that was why I had wanted to know if you knew it before you started. Usually, I think, I, I knew the end point, the actual feeling that, I'm so glad you cried, thank you. Uh, <laughs> I knew that I wanted I don't want to, to tell them why I cried, no. because I don't want to ruin it for them, but it moved me. I, I, I knew I wanted to produce that feeling, and I knew the exact point where the main character would be as yeah, I tried yeah, to produce that yeah. feeling. It was just how I, how yeah. I got there through, through that. Yeah. And, so it, and at the heart is this, well, there are several stories of very toxic abuse um, and a very beautifully described, horrifically described uh, case of, uh, as you say, coercive control, domestic abuse, um, an emotionally toxic relationship, which I just have to say, hideously accurate. You're not the only one who said that, which yeah. is a bit scary. Um, I really wanted to write a relationship where... There is no physical abuse yeah. in the sense that uh, there's no beatings, but you do know that this, when you go into the flashback section in the middle, you know that she's, she's going to die at the end. So you, as the reader, um, you go back in real time into her previous life, and she just narrates the story of the relationship in real time. So obviously at that point, she's just meeting this new young man who's um, very romantic, um, rather exacting, um, quite possessive all over her like a rash. And you as the reader know that it is going to go horribly wrong by the end. But I was just very, very interested in exploring um, psychological manipulation and coercive control. And I think 
to me, that is the way in which the, the public debate has moved beyond a very straightforward view of domestic abuse and a kind of cliched view of a sort of tattooed thug who comes home from the pub and beats his wife into something much more nuanced about the way about controlling behavior. I was just really interested in exploring that. Um, and I was going to say I had a lot of fun with it, but that's not accurate because it was uh, obviously terrifying to write in some ways. But I, knowing the end point when the character didn't was a really interesting mm. writing process. Yes. So, so I, want, I want to ask you both. I mean, so we have a ghost and we have a somewhat amnesiac um, narrator. For me, what struck me about both books when I was looking for commonalities was that before the story can even start, you've got people who have to figure out who the hell they are. Mm. How, first of all, what, where does that even come from in, in your mind? And second of all, how much, you know, how, how much did you want to, um, what were you going for with that? What were you exploring? Mm. Um, well, in, in my case, it was a very straightforward problem, which is when you write from the point of view of a ghost, you have to establish the rules of what can your ghost do. Mm. And the first one is, is your ghost a poltergeist? Can they move objects in the living world? Because obviously if they can, you know, then they have a whole lot of powers and they can effectively communicate with the living world. And I decided straight away I didn't want her to be a poltergeist. I didn't want her to make you know, signs swing and things like that. Um, and I, it was important that she couldn't communicate, but I did decide that although she was pure consciousness, that she could re read people's minds. So the strand of the story that I haven't mentioned yet is the life and loves of the people on Peterborough Railway mm. Station. And there's a security guard called Dalmar who's um, from Somalia. There's Peter Barker, the uh, inspector of the British Transport Police who plays in a ukulele band. Um, <laughs> And there's a young um, constable, Akash Lockhart, who investigates um, Lisa's death and various other characters. And so although it's a first-person novel, she is also, Lisa is also the omniscient narrator of the stories of the other people she comes mm -hmm. across. So it's from a technical narrative point of view, I made my job quite hard. Well, you, bo you both did, but I'm also wondering, in a way you're both doing what they say in fantasy writing, world building. And at some point, did you both say, oh, I'm just going to go for it. I can do whatever I want. It's my book. No, because <laughs> <laughs> not ever. Uh, I mean, my book, well, no, there is a never. But uh, to go back to the amnesia thing, so this ties in directly to that, right? Like, I didn't want an amnesia coast. Like, that was not where I started from. My problem, as you said, was a technical problem. That because I wanted to make this a board game and I didn't want him to have any information that you didn't have, I either started off... Because the book starts, the very first page, the very first thing that happens, he's in a forest, he's got a name on his lips, Anna, and then he sees a woman get murdered. That is the first page of the book. So then I either had to rewind mm -hmm. and fill you in on who this guy had been in the what, 40 years before you got to him, which was tedious, and I didn't want to do that. And also, it wouldn't have made the game fur because half of what he's doing... Like what's, he would have been able to apply skills. I didn't want to do that. I wanted him to be a blank slate, and you learn about him later. So Amnesia had to be the starting point, just technically. And then I fucked it up, because then I realised that you wouldn't let me get away with just having Amnesia. Like just, I would have kept him blank all the way through it, mm -hmm. right? Like just don't go into his backstory. Don't learn a thing about him. He's just there playing the game. Like what do you need to know about the car in Monopoly? Not a great deal, right? Like it's, just, <laughs> it's fine. It speeds around. Mm -hmm. It tries to win. But then... 
readers don't want that. They want to know who this guy is. So then I had to, and then I was like, well, fuck, I've already written this incredibly complicated novel, and now I've got a thread and amnesia strand through there mm-hmm. as well. So it was the last thing I wanted to do. And then as for world building, that was the same problem. Like, I wouldn't have had any world building. Like, the, I knew I was always going to explain why he was in a loop. Mm-hmm. I knew that had to happen. I knew why I had to explain why he was body hopping. That had to happen as mm-hmm. well. But as I went along, the level of detail that I thought I had to give and the level of detail that my publisher thought I had to give, very different things, it turns mm-hmm. out. So I was, like, I was happy just to give some... At the end, this is why it's happening... That's nice, isn't it? And now we can get on with the Agatha Christie stuff. My publisher, and especially my US publishers, wanted a great deal more detail. And they wanted it at the top of the novel, not at the end of the novel. They wanted you to come in. And it's a, I think it's an audience thing as well in the US specifically. They like the rules very clear and delineated at the beginning of the book. Why is this happening this way? Explain it. Right, now we can move on. And apparently they wouldn't have got... From my publisher, they said that the audience wouldn't have been able to accept the rest of the book if I hadn't given them that first big block of information at the beginning. So it was an interesting exercise in audience expectation. Do you find that your American publishers have very different uh, editorial queries? What um, is Peterborough? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> what is Peterborough? Yeah. Um, what it, is Waitrose? <laughs> it was interesting with Blackwater, because Blackwater is set mostly in Indonesia, um, but there was a section set in Los Angeles um, in the 1950s with a character who was a black lawyer in the civil rights movement. And my American editor really went through that with a kind of fine-tooth comb. And we actually had a couple of fights over some details because I had researched that with great care. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think there was, there was more, certainly much more of an issue of me sort of treading on... American soil in a way that wasn't with the whole great section set in Indonesia and and also in Amsterdam in the 1960s and the Cold War. Mm -hmm. I think American editors, there's a lot more micromanaging, isn't there? Mm. I mean, there's a lot more um, anxiety about sort of tiny fact-finding points in a way that over here I find the the editorial process seems to be a lot broader and it's not more about the quality of the prose and... uh, I think there, there is something very um, interesting and sort of yeah. nitpicky about the American editing process. And, and are the two edits merged into one thing, or are they separate? If I bought your book in America, would I be reading it's it It's been different with different every book? novel, because I've moved publishers quite ah, a lot yeah, in America. Okay. The, the one that I regret is Whatever You Love, which is set in a small seaside town um, in England. The American editor wanted to Americanize the spelling and the language, so the classic thing of grey yeah. being with yeah. an A instead of an E. But she also changed some words, and I regret letting this go through. So, for instance, instead of ice lolly, she changed it to popsicle. Mm. And the thing is, is the novel is still set in a small seaside town in yeah. England, yeah. Yeah. but it sounds as though they all have American accents because <laughs> the kids ask for popsicles. It's just really yeah. bizarre, and I can't believe I let that one go through. Yeah. I, should have, I should have stopped that one in its tracks. How do you decide, in both books, your characters... I mean, when we do find out who he is, he's got a complicated backstory. Mm-hmm. Lisa has a complicated backstory. In terms of just technical, as a writer, how do you decide, I'm going to give them this much here, but I don't want to, I don't want, how do you tease out that story? How do you decide, this is good here, this is, you know, how do you do that? Um, I mean, I did it by just consistently fucking up the novel. 
for about 15 drafts and then like every time it'd be Five like... 5-0? Not one for I know, there was, there was honestly about 27 drafts, wow. I think. And it would just be like, I'd feel, I can't even describe it, it just felt like lumpy. It felt like you were just thinning out like mash. Yeah. So like I would have like, oh God, that feels a bit, there's loads of information dumped there and then there's nothing for ages and then there's a massive, and it just kills the novel stone dead. And it was just a feel, so I would then go back in the next draft and I would try and yank, so to put it in perspective, the entire ending of the book, about 40 pages in the first, must be 10 drafts, was just all explanations. So it was all questions for 95% of the book and mm -hmm. then 5% of explanations for 40 pages, long past the point that anyone had ever, would ever care about any of these explanations. So then it was just getting that entire ending and basically ripping it up and putting it and seeding it through the ah, book. So okay. you were getting endings as you went along, but it wasn't, that wasn't in the plan. There was no craft to it. I'd never done this before. And the no. only way you learn to do it is by actually doing it. Because yeah. I, my journalism is back, is my background is journalism. And I honestly went into this with the idea of, well, I've written a 3,000 word feature. How hard can a book be? Uh, <laughs> hard, huh? Yeah, extraordinarily different things, it turns <laughs> out. Um, so that was really weird for me. And I honestly thought I'd learned from that until it came to the second book and I've learned nothing. Well, I've I would say when you get to number nine, it's, it's no <laughs> yeah. It just never goes away. Yeah, it's bonkers, yeah. isn't it? I think to answer your question about backstory, the yeah. thing I've learned um, over the nine novels is that what is problematic is the segue from yeah. the present to the past. Um, and, I mean, Whatever You Love was originally... Um, 20 chapters, you know, the present, past, present, past, present. And it was like a kind of car engine yeah. that was jerky. It kept kangaroo oh. hopping. Every time the story got going, you went back into another flashback. And what I've learned over the years is think about doing your backstory all in one chunk. Yeah. So Platform 7 is very... Yeah, um, I was really pleased when I did the word count and worked out it was three-thirds. It was you know, the, the present story, the middle third of the past, and then back to the present to conclude the book. Um, what's very common, um, I'm sure lots of people are working on novels in the audience. I won't ask for a show of hands. Sometimes I do that. Um, They're kicking us out. Yeah. And it's a very common fault when you're working on your first novel is too much exposition in the early stages, mm. front-loading of yeah. the, the backstory. And what I'm always saying to people in first novel is you may feel my reader really needs to know this main character's mother died. Yeah. And you may feel an absolute desire to tell them that in the first chapter. Actually, they don't need to know it in the first chapter. Yeah. Have that character behaving mm. in a certain way. Have it as a mystery. You can put it three quarters of the way through. Um, don't feel you have to tell your reader everything up front. And, yeah. and that's, that's always the way, I think. Um, never front load backstory. Always push it further later yeah. in the book. Well, while we're talking about technique, then I know that you abandoned about 40,000 words of this novel, and you told me that you've had a few um, things that had to be jettisoned as well yeah. over your career. Can you guys talk about when an idea just isn't working and has to, you know, the phrase, kill your darlings? Yeah, I mean, mine was really particular just because, because the novel was so intricately planned. There was... Like, uh, we talked about it, I touched on it earlier, there was moments, just days, where I find writing, on the whole, to be incredibly tedious. Uh, just sitting down, not the act of writing, not the actual moment, but like sitting down at a computer, staring at a screen, indoors all the time, just 
bores me. It really does. So I like to go out and do things, and I do a lot of things to sort of like get myself in the right frame of mind to write. But there's just days where you just sat down at a computer. There's nothing you can do. You've just got to be there. And I just, I'm like, oh, God, I'd rather be doing anything else. So what would invariably happen is I'd look at the plan. And the way I wrote Seven Deaths wasn't chronological, right? I had my plan in front of me. I would just be like, well, Chapter 73 sounds good today. I'll write that one. So I'd write Chapter 73. Great. But there'd be days when I'd look at that plan and be like, there's nothing there I fancy writing. There's not a thing. And like, one of the big problems I did was because I did write what I wanted to, I left all the bits I didn't like till the end of the prompt. So like, I basically like leaving all your vegetables, except you're eating a meal over three years. That's a lot of vegetables, right? So like, there was just a lot of pile of stinking broccoli right, for me, waiting for me. So what I ended up doing was just having good ideas that weren't in the plan, where I'd just be like, well, this could work. And it was just, I see it now as just somebody striving to write something they want to write rather than writing, this is what happened on day Z. So I am one of those ideas inevitably led to the next good idea, which led on to the next good idea, which led on to the next good idea, until my plan is here and my book is over here somewhere. And then I scramble to get back down to that plan because there was no way I'm getting to the ending from over there. And I, was, I got to that point where I was like, well, maybe if I do this, the reader won't notice. And the moment I did that, I was like, nope, that's not what you set out to do. Like, you set out to make this fair and to make this honest. You invested three months in your life to making sure that worked. And now, because you've written yeah. all this, so I was like, I had to go all the way back to the trunk of the novel and just chop it off from that point and kind of start from there. And I nearly I came as close as I'll ever come to having a breakdown, I suspect. Which for me, because I don't really have human emotions, was more like, a, that's sad. But that was, it was a big deal for me. Uh, I really felt it. So that was, that was 40,000 words, and it was, it was a month of work as well. It was horrible, horrible, horrible. What's your horror story? Well, or quite a few of them, yeah. I mean, and then I, we'll the, turn it over to the audience. Yeah, I, I, there was a scene in Fires in the Dark, which is my Holocaust novel, which was a scene that I really, really loved, and it was where Joseph, who's the main character, tells his wife, Anna about how it's about a group of nomadic um, Calderash Roma in the 20s, 30s, and 40s in Central Europe. And he's explaining to Anna how his family were slaves uh, because the Roma were slaves in um, 19th century Romania. And he tells the story of his grandmother, who was the last generation of slaves and all the rest of it. And it was pure exposition. It had nothing to do with the plot. They're actually mm. fleeing across war-torn Europe at this point. And it appeared in the early section. I thought, I can't have it there. It's exposition. I took it out. I put it later. Didn't really fit. I put it even later when their lives were getting, were in great danger. You know, you can't suddenly have your characters stopping and having a conversation when they're in great danger. And eventually, having moved it to about four or five different places, I thought, this story has got to come out. It has no... It, it was a really nice little section. It was three or 4,000 words, and it had no place in my novel. Mm. And it was really hard taking it out. But about a year later, the British Council, who were doing an anthology, asked me if I had a short story for a collection oh, of excellent. writing. <laughs> so I recycled it, got it out, tidied it up a bit. And nobody, nobody's ever noticed that the character Joseph in the short story, Doikitsa, that appears in New Writing 13, is actually the same character nice. that's in Fires in the Dark. But that was They know now. They yeah, do yeah. know now. All um, sworn to secrecy, yeah. all right? <laughs> but... That was a, a joy because it was a self-contained episode. You're, you're not yeah. always that lucky. And there are times where you just... 
however good a scene is, if it doesn't belong in your novel, it doesn't belong in your novel, mm. and you've got to hook it out. Yeah. That's usually, I mean, again, I'm only two novels in, but that's usually my first warning sign, right? If it's yeah. just completely self-contained and you could take it out and not affect your story remotely, yeah. that's, that's probably a quite a bad sign yeah, yeah. for me. Like, and I've got a lot of those at the moment. I'm like, oh. I've been really greedy. We have about six minutes for audience questions. Anybody who doesn't get called on here, when you go by the book and get it signed, you could ask your question face to face. There's a roving mic. Let's have a show of hands. We'll try to get in a couple of this questions. One, oh, there's somebody all over here. Just wait till the microphone gets to you because not everybody will be able to hear otherwise. And we'll do short, kissy answers. We'll get in as many audience people. It was just that my blood ran cold when you said 400 pages in the middle book. That is not my ideal length. I prefer something like 250 or something. Really concentrated and... and uh, when did you grow from 250 to 400 and 500 and 600? Ghastly books that you can't keep open when you're reading them in bed. Oh, okay. Well, well <laughs> we have a question. We have an actual question. I can't tell which I, I one of our novels anyone. you were insulting there, but I, <laughs> I enjoyed the I way it was, it was done. <laughs> it was good. I'm sorry, I'm having trouble. I don't see a show of hands. No, oh. Everyone's slightly silenced. Oh, yeah. There's one, there's a question there. We've stunned them into silence. No, I, I, don't I didn't realise you were from Witness. It is a shithole. <laughs> Yay! <laughs> um, so when you were planning, was it like a giant ball of sticky notes or was it like a spreadsheet or like lots of different things? It was, it was all of them. So I had the spreadsheet, which was like, it would have been 120 pages or something of spreadsheet. There was a timeline. There was a map of the house and grounds that was drawn in crayon, like literally crayon because I'm a child and I thought that's the only way I'd want to look at it. That had stringy things all over it to see, so I could root out that person walks from there, gets to there, that's what happens. And then I had A4 pads filled with character notes and uh, post-it notes on the walls that were just like themes and things I wanted to keep in mind. Because it just got to that point where it was so sprawling that I needed every organisational technique to kind of wrangle it into shape. Yeah. And you've got it spread out on what, your sitting room floor, your study I, floor? I did, yeah. I do a lot of spreading out on the floor. You have and to then stand the on a chair and <laughs> Look over it. Yeah. Somebody else. Oh, here's a question right here in the front. Thank you both. Um, beyond process, beyond method, beyond struggle, all of these things which are true, where is the sweet spot that you find when you're writing where you just are sitting there and you just feel totally satisfied, at least in that moment? Oh, good question. I think for me, there are moments when you're writing where you forget you're writing and you believe you are in the scene and you might be sitting in a room or a cafe and your fingers are moving but you've actually forgotten you're making the story up it's like it's unfolding in front of you and that's that's the sweet spot it doesn't happen often but when it does it's a real joy mine is 10 seconds before i write the first word uh I, that's the bit I love the most. And then the moment I start the novel, my keyboard turns to nettles and my screen turns to hammers. And that's what I endure for about two years. I find, it, I find the entire process incredibly difficult. And that, I, don't, that's, I kind of enjoy it that way. That's kind of what I'd want it to be because it just it feels like work that way. Whereas, yeah, northern class, I think, working class chip on the shoulder about what manual labour should be. I think there's a question there. I see an arm here. I can't see who it's attached to, but I see the arm. 
Other than your own books, what are your favorite novels? Hmm. Oh, well, gosh. Um, well, obviously, at the moment, I'm wanting to reread everything Toni Morrison ever wrote. Mm. Um, Beloved is one of my favorite novels of mm -hmm. all time. Um, anything by Margaret Atwood, um, Helen Dunmore, I mm. love. Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie, I think, is brilliant. And the book's um, dedicated to Andrew Levy, yeah, Andrew Levy, who was a friend of mine, also sadly no longer with us, died in February this year. Mm. And it, it was very appropriate because the book is very much about what we leave behind us and how we live on in the hearts of the people who loved us and knew us. So, um, and I was able to tell her I was dedicating it to Aww. her before she died. Aww. So that's um, obviously got a bit of a place in my heart. Uh, mine's The God of Small Things by Anati Roy. Like I don't really do authors, like favorite authors, just because, um, I love individual novels, and then maybe I fall out of love with the next novel. It's never quite there, but that book is my... I could read that a hundred times, and it would feel like a different novel to me every time. I just think it's wonderful. It's beautiful. And also, like, it's that novel where it's so far beyond my ability to write that it just humbles me, and I need that sometimes. Okay, we'll just have one last question. Somebody in the first row here. Thank you. Uh, Stuart, you said you were two books in. Does that mean you're in the process of planning or writing a second one? The uh, second one's technically finished. So right. the first draft has been turned in and I am editing it for its life at the moment. Uh, and it's going to be... We're looking at sort of October next year, I think, for release. Is it also a board game? Yeah, it's another board game, but it's set on a, it's set on a spooky ship. That's <laughs> what we're doing. So, yeah, it's cool. It's really good fun. Never knowingly not high concept. Never knowingly not high concept, yeah. You, you can put that on the paperback. <laughs> yeah. Not only has Lee given me a Pulitzer, but... <laughs> I'm going to just remind everyone that we're going to head over to the bookshop where both these fantastic authors will be signing. But before we break for the exits and the rain, can we just say thank you to them? Thanks, guys. Thank you for listening. Find out more about the Book Festival at edbookfest.co.uk and keep up to date on events, booking information and more by following us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. Just search at edbookfest. The Edinburgh International Book Festival takes place every August in Charlotte Square Gardens.